I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility podcast. We're at an exciting time in the mobility sector with new technology causing us to continually question the way we move both goods and people. My job is to talk to the people leading this revolution and to highlight the challenges and opportunities we face as we develop and implement safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. This podcast is brought to you by FEV. Check us out on LinkedIn or learn more at FEV.com. Today's guest is Chase Drum. Chase has had multiple roles within the electric vehicle space, and he's now focused on the electrical grid. So naturally, that's where we spent most of this conversation. We started kind of a a one-on-one level talking about, okay, what is the electrical grid? How is power generated? How is it transported? Then we took a... uh, a unique look at the Texas situation. So this is recorded um, early 2021, shortly after there's a significant power challenge, and I guess actually during a significant power challenge down in the state of Texas following a cold spell. And we talked about what um, what's unique about their grid system and what has enabled such a challenging situation to arise. And then finally, we looked forward looking at electric vehicles, so bringing it to mo- the mobility space, Thinking about as electric vehicle adoption increases, what does that mean for the grid? What needs to be done to clean up the grid, make it so that um, the electricity that we're generating is cleaner? And then what needs to be done to account for the increased load that's needed um, as electric vehicles continue to uh, gain in popularity? So really fun discussion. If you enjoyed this, check out Chase's podcast, Grid Connections, in which he talks about... um, as you can guess, some of these topics around the the electrical grid and and such. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Chase Drum. Today, I'm joined by Chase Drum. Chase, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brandon. It's my pleasure to be speaking with you and really excited to be discussing some of the topics that we're looking at going over today. Yeah, yeah, of course. So the uh, yeah, I think the electrical grid is going to be kind of a, a center point here, which I'm looking forward to just diving into. But uh, before we get there, could you please introduce yourself and share a bit about, I guess, what you've worked on or what you're working on now? My pleasure. So, yeah, my name is Chase Drum. I've worked in uh, software and uh, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, quite a few different areas, but all kind of correlated to what my podcast is all about. And that's really around Uh, how the electrical grid is becoming the main front between new clean transportation, software for better managing resources like renewable energy, and all of these coming in together at kind of the current time and this evolution and looking at how these will continue to impact and make a difference. So I I think this has kind of been a wild year (laughs) and especially a wild week uh, for quite a few different industries. So this has been a really fun kind of project. I started actually down uh, during the COVID lockdowns as just a way to kind of keep in contact with a lot of the uh, people I had in the industry and kind of just explore and get uh, greater awareness of how quickly these technologies are moving in this way. And so uh, I'm really flattered to be here speaking with you and kind of sharing some of this with your audience today. Yeah, and I'm excited about the uh, the topic here, the electrical grid, because it, it's something. At least I, I come more from a, a vehicle centric approach, so the development of technology, right? That we're uh, whether it's electrification or automated vehicles, um, but the a key enabler for this, especially as we're talking about electric vehicles, is, is the grid. So I'm, I'm excited to to dig in here. Um, before before we get too far, I guess could you start by kind of just laying, I don't know. A, high school level lay, lay in the background okay what, what what actually is the grid how how is, how is power generated and transported um in the united states 
Yeah, uh, <laughs> crash course. Let's let's. One yeah. of my favorite analogies is uh, if we were to bring Andrew Bell to today, he would not recognize what a phone is. Obviously, we have the iPhones and just the insane amount of evolution. Mm-hmm. If you were to bring Thomas Edison or Nikola Tesla to today, they could pretty quickly figure out where the electrical sockets are and how the actual electrical systems in most houses work and even start looking at uh, transformers and the larger grid and could just see how it naturally rolled out. So it, it's a space where there's some interesting advancements, but we're dealing with some pretty um, pretty large legacy pro- uh, products and not only just infrastructure, but sometimes um, traditional regulations and quite a few different topics that are being pushed to move very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all going in that way. Um, but really, as it, it evolved, the electrical grid on a larger front really started on the East Coast and was kind of piecemealed and attached um, as we expanded uh, kind of the service. And so there was an element of it that obviously started on the East Coast and went West. And then we had, um, as the West Coast became, uh, had more people on it, more populated, then we started kind of expanding from that way towards a bit to the center of the country. That's a over over simplification of what we see today yeah. um but kind of gives you a, an idea and we, there's there's one big asterisk but we'll be talking about that shortly yeah yeah for, for sure uh, the and, and just to, to lay the groundwork so so essentially the you know so, so power gener is generated someplace whether it's a coal-powered plant nuclear power, powered plant um i don't know a, a dam or whatever is generating some sort of electricity and then the at the, at the highest level, the grid is essentially what's moving that electricity to where it needs to be used, right? So you have the the high voltage lines, as, as I understand it, and, and jump in here, I'm certainly not an expert, but the high voltage lines moving um, electrical energy over uh, far distances. And then as you get closer, you throttle that down to the correct voltage that you need for, for a given application for a house or a residential area or something. Is that at the highest that, that's- level? That that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone has probably seen um, the very large, uh, high uh, kilovolt uh, power lines that kind of go f- through some sometimes very scenic and very beautiful areas, but they're yeah. massive power lines. Um, I, I live in the Northwest, and so we actually have a lot of our power comes from hydroelectric. Um, that's kind of unique to this part of the country, but uh, yeah, I mean. I'm actually close to where I live is kind of close to where a couple of these large dams are. Um, and this could easily be a few different episodes, uh, but there that power comes from what's known as the Bonneville power administration, okay. uh, which is its own kind of federal uh, only exists here. And so that that's the other thing that makes it really hard for people to understand a lot of these uh, things about the grid is there's some universal things up until some really fun asterisks that just are completely different. Um, and it, I, I find it a little frustrating because it can make it really hard for people who want to learn more to know this because you kind of have to have a pretty large uh, base knowledge of what the grid is and where it is today. Uh, and obviously it's different. Every country's uh, grid is different and it can, it uh, varies pretty drastically from different parts of the country. Like you said, some parts uh, get a lot of theirs from false fuels like coal and um, natural gas and then you're starting to see throughout the south and kind of the south the southwest and uh, west coast uh, and even parts i guess now of the east coast with like wind um, solar is becoming a quick 
growing one as well. Cool. And I'd like to uh, eventually circle back and we'll, we'll talk about what this means for electric vehicles and sustainability and such. But you, you had alluded to and let's let's dive in here to kind of the the big uh, the interesting aspect of how, how the U.S. Is, is split up. And to give context of so recording this in late February, we just had kind of a uh, re- remarkable event down in Texas where there was a very incredibly cold temperature for them, some snow coverage and through through that resulted a uh, unique and in some ways catastrophic electrical situation so with that could you could you kind of run with that and explain kind of why why are they in a unique situation and what happened there yeah i'm gonna i I feel really uh, bad for the people down there they're they're obviously struggling and even now they're still uh, i think a lot of them have received power but they're still dealing with a lot of uh, water issues (laughs) so we kind of have to hop back a little bit but I'll keep it pretty high level. Um, so how I was saying earlier, there's really two divides. There's what's known as the East Coast interconnection grid and the West Coast interconnection grid. And within each of those, there's kind of smaller things, but at a high level, and I'm sure a lot of people saying on TV are seeing this graph flash where um, essentially right down the middle, the Western half is it, they're, they're connected, but the Western half is more or less its own grid or that's how it's viewed in a lot of regulatory ways. And then you have the East Coast interconnection grid. Um, and it's split down the middle until right at the bottom, there's Texas. And so Texas is its own unique power grid. Um, there's a few reasons for this, but long story short, one of the big reasons it hasn't really um, connected back to the grid actually has to deal with um, the regulatory body known as FERC. Um, and this isn't all of it, but this is one part of it that mm-hmm. by how they wanted to deregulate their market um, in some regards, it would have been harder to be a part of the, it essentially would have been impossible to stay a part of the grid. And there's, there's interesting um, arguments and reasons to look at maybe, I don't want to say deregulating, but at least giving more customers the option to choose who their utility is. And that's kind of what has been happening was um, I believe it was originally early two thousands where the kind of the official decision to deregulate a lot of Texas's grid happened. I want to say 2003, but around that timeline. Um, And the best analogy I can use to, even though the utilities own the energy through this deregulation to give more people the choice to choose their utility, essentially what happened is kind of similar to the model you see with a lot of uh, cell phone towers and telecom. Uh, So like AT&T and Verizon have the majority of the actual cell infrastructure but then you have the rise of T-Mobile, um, Sprint, and a few other cell carriers. And essentially what they did was they would lease um, some of that cell capacity and the infrastructure from AT&T or Verizon so they could give service to their customers, even though they didn't always own the infrastructure. And that's kind of what was happening in Texas, which is an interesting idea. Um, and I think there's a use case for maybe how it could work down the line, but essentially what happened was you had these utilities, you had the customer who now could choose these utilities that didn't own the infrastructure, but they were paying to them. Um, and it kind of worked for a while. And then back in 2011, uh, there was a similar freeze that happened. And there was a lot of legislature, uh, the Texan legislature that hey, kind of pushed and said, hey, we need a we need to at least weatherize better and figure out to make sure this doesn't happen again. And the, what, the, the storm wasn't as bad, but it was pretty bad. 
what starts to get really interesting is the fact that more or less nothing came out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when you have rolling blackouts, um, usually what kind of happens in like a worst case scenario with the storm is, uh, a power line goes down and essentially what was kind of a service to a certain area. Now that load might still be connected in another way. And so it goes on to other transformers. And so all of a sudden these transformers that are higher capacity and sometimes the power just goes out. But what usually will happen, especially when there's a large storm is part of the grid goes down and then another part tries to help assist that area. Sometimes that works, but what usually happens is this starts happening multiple times. And then it just becomes kind of a tsunami effect where transformers start blowing everywhere because they just can't handle all this. And then it starts working its way back up the actual grid. So um, some local transformers might blow in a couple of like cul-de-sacs or smaller um, developments. And then because now the strain has gone on to a large area and let's say there's a supermarket or XYZ load on there, that pushes that one over the top. And then it just kind of cascades. Um, I guess, yeah, snowball effect would become more accurate. And then it will eventually uh, go back to the local um, either power source or however that uh, utility has its grid set up and kind of cause it, uh, cause some pretty serious damage. Yeah. And that's essentially what we saw happen in Texas to an extreme extent. And the other component to that too is then there was all this pushback about, well, this is due to the windmills. Uh, or the renewable energy, and that's that's what kind of caused this. And um, did they fail? Yes. Was that why? No. Um, essentially, Texas, if I remember right, it's roughly about, it's grown very quickly over the last decade and a half, but I think about 10% of Texas's overall energy, uh, electrical energy comes from wind. And then the vast majority of that is either coal or, I, I believe, natural gas. And, so and what then... So, sorry, sorry. Just uh, to jump. So one, yeah, one thing yeah. that's, uh, that isn't clear to me. So you, you talk about this uh, snowball effect and these transformers going, which then messes up the, the whole grid grid. And then you're stuck with a, a huge disaster. How how would that have been or would it have been different? If so, how if Texas would have been connected to one of the, the two banks in the U.S.? Yeah, and that's that's what I was uh, I totally fine. That's what I was kind of getting to is with the. Um, with these different power sources, whether it's the wind energy and the majority of what went down was actually natural gas. Um, what would normally happen is it would fall back to the larger grid and they could kind uh. of reallocate some of those sources. Texas can't really do that. Um, and, and a great example of just how unique the situation is, is actually El Paso is the one part of Texas that's on the West uh, interconnection grid. And so they started having some of these, um, some of their systems started going down, but because they're actually part of the West Coast interconnection grid, they uh, had very short blackouts, I think some only in the minutes, and then they were able to go back and kind of fall onto that power. Now, realistically, with as much of how much of Texas did go down, is that probably, would it have been that quick to pop back? I don't know, uh, but I think it's pretty realistic to assume that it would have come back a lot quicker. Yep. And then I think the big conversation now is how to properly weatherize these, uh, whether it's the natural gas systems or the windmills, because obviously you got them uh, windmills in, and other uh, traditionally fossil fuel based things in Sweden and other very cold countries. So it's, it's not, 
it's really not a issue of these things can't perform in the weather. They just have to be, uh, you have to make sure they're designed to be within that spec to handle when you do get these fluke uh, storms. Yeah. And that's interesting. I think a related question, which I also realize is, is, is partly ignorant. So uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> excuse fine. me here, but it's so it's like, one this the... is, this is a really interesting, this isn't, don't, don't say it's ignorance. This is a really, I mean, I'm learning every day with what's going on right now. This is a very uh, unique thing. And this is just Obviously, there's just a lot of different factors culminating. And Texas is a perfect example of these different changes happening to our grid yeah. impacted by weather. Uh, but these are conversations that are having happening in different forms all across the country. This just accelerated and became the most visible. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, a deeper tie in too to the mobility sector, which, which we'll get to pretty soon here. Oh, yeah. but, so the question I wanted to, to touch on here. So I, I tend to have a more mechanical mind and I, that's study mechanical engineering in school. And I, I, I can think easier uh, seeing something than, I don't know, electrons are hard to see, right? Um, but I, I tend to think of electricity and the, the power that comes to it. It's very similar to water running through a pipe, right? Where it's, you have, uh, you plug something in the socket. It's not like you're pulling energy all the way from the source at that second. It's, there's a flow of electrons sitting there ready to rush into your your device essentially is the way that I, I tend to think of it. The one exception though is water. You can, whether it's know, a water tower or some other way, it's, you can have a reserve of water that you can store that is, is relatively easy to tap into. My understanding is on a large scale, we don't really have that capability for electricity. We don't have huge capacitors or some other stationary power store for, for these huge grids. Could, could you speak to that point? Or yeah, so th there's a few. Um, no, that, that's a great point. So, and that's, I think, what's becoming so interesting about this Texas thing, because that's part of it, too. The very few houses that were still with power were ones that had battery backup systems. So on a utility scale, they do exist. But um, the lithium ion battery backup systems that we're starting to see, it's a it's very new space, but it is growing so quickly. And part of what makes it um, super effective isn't just the fact that it helps back up the system, but it just creates a levelized experience. So whether the loads, if you start getting too much power, you can start putting in the batteries yeah. um, or when it's low, you just, I mean, cause what's a big part of really making sure you're not blowing out transformers or having issues is having a very um, clean and just very um, cohesive, just power going onto the grid. And, and you really want to keep that, and to use to use your analogy, uh, especially with water, it's it's kind of like what happens is you you have a faucet, but if you don't have it controlled right, it would be as if the faucet can either be like dripping or fully on, and you really don't want that. You usually want it so it's like at a slow, steady stream to fill up a bucket, because if it's blasting, it's just going to go everywhere <laughs> and cause a lot of issues. And if it's a drip, it's going to take forever and actually kind of be useless. Yeah. Um, I hope that kind of helps. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I think so. I think it's it's uh, piecing together and understanding there. Um, so, so then moving to mobility. So we speak a good mm -hmm. amount about whether it's a plug-in electric or more more often you're seeing um, full electric vehicles, which you you'd expect to be charger. They're getting their energy from from the grid. So there's there's a few topics here which I think are interesting to to dive into. The so the first one, do you have a feel for if we were to so right now it's relatively low adoption rate of electric vehicles. There's different models out there, but 
you, you know, I, I don't want to cut you off. There is no, something actually just to kind of hop back to the uh, yeah, go ahead. We can go back to electric vehicles. Um, and this, I think, kind of plays into that, especially with uh, more electric vehicles coming on the grid. Um, lithium ion batteries that we're starting to see, especially paired with renewable energy, um, is a really effective way to uh, back up power sources. Uh, the issue is it's a really effective source, but it's usually at least with lithium ion, only good for a few hours. Um, now, admittedly, that's been plenty to like get rid of a lot of traditional peaker plants mm -hmm. and other really inefficient and more or less toxic um, forms of energy that are needed to help the load. The issue is when you do run into situations where you have a large blackout or even like forced blackouts, um, you need power that can be uh, stored for like days. And there are some technologies. One would be... Um, essentially where you pump water up uh, into a larger reservoir and then over time use that water, essentially small hydro energy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. You're, you're taking uh, potential energy and converting it to kinetic energy and spinning a turbine, yada, yada, yada. Um, no different than a normal dam. The issue with that uh, is it only works in certain circumstances and it's not scalable to be fully realistic. And it's yeah. surprisingly expensive a lot of the time. Um, there, there's a really cool project that was successful in the sixties in Ireland. That's probably the best example of it, but that is also the best, um, that worked out to be just like the perfect case of why that technology would work in that situation. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a lot of other technologies that I, I think lithium ion batteries are going to be coming online, like crazy in the short term. And then I think to a larger extent, when we start looking for a more effective way to like replace peaker plants or have just larger amounts of power and reserve, you'll start looking at uh, chemistries that are more similar to like uh, what's known as a redox battery and other technologies that are actually pretty well proven. They just haven't always been up to the scale and there's some pretty cool pilots going on. Yeah. So I think batteries are gonna be, especially lithium ion and residential makes a lot of sense. And I think um, we're seeing this obviously in the mobility space as we were about to talk about, but I, I think that is gonna be there's some part of it that's political, but just the drop in price and cost effectiveness and with a lot of grids on the West Coast and other places doing forced blackouts, I think on a residential scale, lithium ion is going to be it for the future and utility scale, probably short term or a way to help with renewable energy. And then you'll start seeing some of these other technologies for uh, battery systems become more widespread, probably within three to five years. Yeah, and actually, while, while you're speaking, I was making some connections in my own mind. So back to um, this topic, to some extent, what was touched in a previous episode I had on the Future Mobility podcast here with Katrina, Katrina Fritz of the uh, stationary hydrogen or fuel cell uh, partnership out in, out in California, where she, uh, yeah, talking about diesel engines as, as a backup right now, with then uh, talking about the path that hydrogen could potentially play there as, as well as a stationary power source, which also comes with its own challenges, right, of um, getting yeah. the hydrogen there, which I, I don't necessarily want to dig in here because I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's its, it's own topic. Much longer <laughs> conversation, yeah. Yeah, but okay, so, so jumping back though to, so we have the grid, we have electric vehicles, um, there's a small scale adoption right now, it, it, it's likely that that grows significantly in the next, I don't pick your time frame, five to 10 years is likely that there's a significant change. What if, I guess the first question is, is the U.S. the the way the electrical grid is set up? Are we prepared to, with to support the level of um, additional 
energy or the additional charging or the additional stress we're going to put on the grid, or are there some steps that are going to be need to be taken to uh, upgrade certain aspects? Great question. Um, this is actually what I get quite a bit. So right now, especially with electric vehicles are growing. When you look at like actual automotive sales, they're growing pretty quickly, mm-hmm. um, at least as a space. And in the US, it's the slowest. In Europe and China, it's really starting to grow and make a big difference. And some yeah. of that's through regulation, of course. But uh, honestly, with the current grid, the big things you could start to do even today that would make it, it's not like this is going to happen overnight. Um, but what's already being done for a lot of these is looking at just making it so it's actually more cost effective for people who have electric vehicles to charge them at night when demand is lower. So it's uh, probably a lot of your guests are familiar with what's known as time of use. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certain utilities do it, but more and more are looking at doing or at least running pilots with people who have electric vehicles so that instead of it all coming online or like plugging and charging right when they get home, which is usually when um, low demand is the highest for a lot of utilities, it's set so it charges from like 10 p.m. to like four in the morning. And with that kind of capacity and what we're seeing, it's actually pretty scalable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I do think that just with what we're seeing today, I mean, a big part of it could just be solved with software. Uh, and that's a big part of what we talk about on my podcast too, is just looking at like how a lot of these, when you're using legacy technologies, are they the best hardware? No, but it's a big incremental improvement is using them smarter. And I, I think that's something we're already seeing. And a lot of utilities are having those discussions. Yeah. And, and then and I'd quickly just yeah, to yeah. Make, make sure I understand that question that what you're saying there. So is, is it accurate that the, the current grip capacity is essentially optimized so that we can support the, the peak couple of hours, which I assume is after people come home from work, they're cooking normally yeah. lights are on or whatever. And, and so essentially what you're saying is as long as we're not increasing demand during that peak time, if we're able to use this demand for charging electric vehicles in a off time, then that has no effect because we already are able to support that within the current use case or the, the current load of, on the grid. Is that right? More, more or less. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there's obviously things you'd want to do to try and make sure that some of these systems aren't running at that peak all the time, because a lot of transformers are actually designed to cool at night. Okay. Um, so there, there's definitely some considerations, but when you're looking at things out on the whole, um, by far, uh, there's a lot, we could add a lot more electric vehicles today overnight, and there really wouldn't be much impact. Um, and then once again, when you start pairing it with just like thinking about this in a smarter way. And I think what's really smart is a lot of these com- utilities are saying you can charge it. We'll just charge you more. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then when you look at the rates, it's still actually a lot cheaper to charge and be charged more during the peak hours than it is like to fill it up with gas, which is kind of funny. Um, but even then, um, charging standards have improved so much that for most daily driving, charging it from 10 p.m. to four night, you're going to have the thing's going to be charged yeah. and be full in the morning anyway. So you don't really care. And, and I think I cut you off. So I, I'd be curious to hear more about you. You're saying that software has a has a role to play here. Can you talk, speak more of kind of what what can be done just using software? Uh, that could easily be its own. Uh, so I think. I'm, I'll let me try and keep it as short as possible. So yeah. software is going to be, play a huge part moving forward with a lot of utility projects for actually buying. So a lot of the time, what's going on is different utilities are buying futures in advance of like the day before or other times to find out what energy they need. 
Uh, and that's an area where a lot more machine learning is being added. So these systems are looking at historical data and using projected models to figure out what their grid is going to need for energy. Hmm. Um, that is its own very fascinating topic. Uh, Tesla released a software called what they're calling AutoBidder. And I think that's one of their technologies that, act, I mean, everyone loves to talk about their cars. Their cars are great. Their solar stuff's cool. Uh, their battery backup stuff, also fascinating. But from like an actual impact that everyone will see, this auto bidder technology, um, you're starting to see it used in not only just domestic markets, but also in Europe. And that's going to affect everyone because that's going to be utilities using that to figure out what their energy is and where to buy it best. Um, and then they can even make their own optimizations with their battery backup systems, knowing who and where is buying energy and where they're putting it <laughs> or planning to put it. Uh, and then software also plays a part as the smart home and all these other IOT services for whether you want to do vehicle to grid or vehicle to load technologies, um, when to charge uh, an electric vehicle. I, like I said, this, this could easily be a thing, but it really does become a big part of just using what we already have much more efficiently Yeah. and software. Uh, I, one of my favorite studies was actually Google leveraged their, um, I always want to call it deep space. What was it? It's called deep, uh, deep mind AI about four or five years ago. And they did a test where like, let's use, let's, instead of buying power, let's just use the AI to manage the server farm they had and figure out if we can find some optimizations. They saw a 40% decrease in the first day of using it. And that's the kind of stuff that is just, it's so hard to fathom that we're starting to see there, there are definitely areas where these gains can be much more impactful. Um, but we're, we're starting to see a lot of large improvements being made uh, in areas we just weren't either thinking about or we're just being able to finally apply really more, um, more impactful software in ways that it's been needing. And that will help bring down the overall, overall energy usage that will kind of help make electric vehicles um, and these battery backup things to make our grid much more resilient. And that's, then you start getting into vehicle to grid and all these other technologies that are kind of on the horizon, but a lot of the hardware is already out there um, in the space to kind of help prevent whether it's a blackout or if you want to sell it back to the grid. Yeah. And, and I think another silly question here, which is related to what you're saying, um, but to just when, when you say there's a, a cost savings or an efficiency savings of 40% in Google's case, where, where does that come from? So is it that um, basically like if, if they over plan or if, if too much electricity is uh, if more electricity is generated than is needed for a given day, basically that's just wasted somehow or how, how does that work? I, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at the actual thing, but essentially what it was, was the AI was to figure out better, did a better job of knowing which servers need to be on and a lot of ah, different okay. pr things inside the farm. Um, that led to a 40% decrease. And um, yeah. to be honest with you, I don't remember off the top of my head of all this stuff, but you're starting to see just these amazing, like it, for the longest time in um, kind of the combustion engine space, like five, 6% gains are great. Yeah. Um, and they really were. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love, uh, there's, there's a lot of muscle cars and traditional uh, sports cars that I love, but just as far as efficiency gains we're seeing, it, it really is on the electrical side and it's, um, and that, I think that's still one of my favorite examples of just a overnight 40% savings. Yeah. And it's fascinating. You can probably tell by, uh, the, the way I'm talking about it and the questions I've asked, not something that I've 
dug into uh to, to the level that i have no 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 it's 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 but, fine i no, i'm a nerd actually, on this stuff so it's i i enjoy speaking with other people and kind of sharing this uh no no worries no so and where i was going with that is that it's actually it's, it's giving me i think the appetite to dive in a bit deeper and uh and, and appreciate this topic and, and hopefully anyone who's listening is getting the same if you're uh if you're in the vehicle development space um I think the last last topic I wanted to touch on in, in the grid, and then we'll, we'll switch to more of uh, kind of clo- closing personal rapid fire questions. But uh, the, the last question I wanted to ask here is about sustainability. So you mentioned, uh, yeah, you have hydropower for the most part and where, where you are, there's many different ways in which we're uh, either renewable or not renewable. Um, do, do you have any thoughts or anything you can share regarding kind of what, what the path looks like to cleaning up the grid because that, that's a huge huge part of the overall equation when you're making a switch to electric vehicles of how clean you actually are right yeah i mean um that that's a great question that, that's one i hear quite a bit all the time there's been some amazing studies done that um if you got like a tesla or even like even a nissan leaf um and you were driving in or lived in west virginia which is pretty much all coal and is about as dirty by uh, our measurements of any part of the country for electrical energy, you'd still be, I think you, I forgot what it came to, but you'd be get slightly better. You'd have better than a Prius. Um, and so it, it's pretty clear that as far as electric vehicle impact compared to traditional combustion engine, or even with some of these uh, pilots that people are looking at for using hydrogen, uh, the life cycle assessment from the building of the vehicle to the using of the vehicle, to the recycling of the vehicle, it's pretty like I and I'm I'm trying to I'm usually Mister I'm kind of the pessimist. I try and find like pushback and where I can see like okay, does is this really accurate? Um, but if you like actually talk to the people who are doing this and find like the like true really good, there's no shortage of people of keyboard jockeys um, that'll say oh that doesn't make sense and they're they're going off their gut. They're not looking at like actual data or talking to people who are doing the measurements it's clear you would see a pretty large reduction in um, different uh, toxic, whether it's CO2 and other kind of release gases that you would see on a energy output, just because uh, electric vehicles are so much more efficient. And even when you take into effect, like the making and mining for the actual battery packs, yeah, um, we're, we're still seeing that it's still a lot less than traditional uh, combustion engine. And I think what's really interesting too is we're the probably the biggest thing had been traditionally cobalt and you're just seeing how more and more um most electric vehicles are starting to go away from that to uh, what's known as a lithium iron phosphate battery uh they're much more cost effective and there's been a lot more advancements made that are kind of removing what's been some of the known as conflict resources and the last thing i'll say too is I think the big thing people were talking about uh, was with cobalt, but cobalt's also used in a lot of oil operations. And I, I've, I've seen some, I don't want to, I, I don't, I've seen some data that shows it's about just as much or uh, even more that go, cobalt goes into processing of oil than there is in like the lifespan of electric vehicles. So it's like, it's kind of a wash argument from everything I've seen. But as far as like the actual grid, um, the fact of the matter is, it is changing. Sometimes there's things that are being done that I don't know if I always agree with and whether it's actually in the best um, cost case for the actual rate payer. 
Um, but the fact of the matter is coal plants are shutting down even just across the country at a pretty high rate. And a big part of that isn't always even political or environmental things. A big part of that is just over the last decade. So when I started doing, uh, I was doing a lot of solar residential and some commercial work around 2008, 2009, a good like a good deal for a solar residential solar system was what we measured at seven bucks a watt. Um, and so these systems were, you would, you'd get a return on them actually usually within three to five years, but that did involve a lot of subsidies and other things, uh, but they were pretty expensive. And now it's down to a dollar 50 a watt. Like the price, part of that production has increased. Another part is the technology is just becoming more widespread and more well-known that people can kind of start understanding how to better, install the technology and do a lot of different things, but it's, it's just falling at rock bottom rates. And we're starting, it's not quite there yet, but the curve is starting to match very similar in lithium ion. So even, I mean, I've been following hydrogen for a long time. That's another power source. And I'm, I'm just not seeing the same scale of cost savings. I think it does make sense for um, like iron smelt, like some like heavy man, heavy manufacturing. I think hydrogen actually has a pretty good use case for um, but as far as the grid itself, I think the majority of it's going to be going towards um, renewable energy with some form of grid backup. I think natural gas will probably be a part of it for a while, just given uh, different parts of it. But even then, um, with the shift to electric vehicles, it's still a better, <laughs> uh, it's still an improvement of air quality and other things by going that way than the traditional uh, combustion engine. Even I've tried to like figure out the most and all these carbon sequestration, all these other things, they're just not, they're one, they're definitely not financially panning out, but they're just not coming to market nearly as quickly as uh, technologies to speed up and accelerate solar or battery or other renewable technologies. Yeah. And I, I want to quickly touch, touch on, cause I, I, had, I had mentioned this a study in a, uh, in a re recent episode, which I didn't, uh, I didn't cite properly. So I want to wrap here, but uh yeah. So, so overall, I agree. Uh, yeah. Electrification, clean, great, great long-term plan. I'm not at quite as bullish on kind of the, the short term. I think a hybrid application right now has, has a lot of good things. And, and the, the, uh, the study that I point people to, which, which I think is a good one is uh, from Polestar, Polestar. So the electric vehicle manufacturer from Volvo. Mm, yeah, they, yeah. Volvo. Yeah. Yep, so it's so very clearly they are incentivized to push electric vehicles as much as possible. Came out with a study of, in advance of their Polestar 2 looking at um, total emissions um, life cycle. And they looked at a, a couple cases depending on how clean the grid is, but essentially an average grid, they say it's, it's somewhere around a hundred thousand miles that you need to drive with that vehicle before you hit the break even point with a, with an internal combustion hybrid vehicle, which is possible most vehicles are driven a hundred thousand miles but i guess the the lesson there is uh yeah bu buying a brand new tesla and driving it for twenty thousand miles and having it sit in your garage is not cleaner than just buying i, I think there, there's there's truth to that but i think what's really fascinating about electric vehicles and i it doesn't matter if it's a tesla uh i'm seeing with the i3 with nissan's uh nissan leaves mm -hmm. how many people when these things get in a wreck are fighting at junkyards to take the batteries out and then use them in their own, whether it's some sort of uh, rest restoration they're using for a traditional thing. It's not like with gas, once it's spent, it's kind of spent. Yeah. Um, the batteries themselves have a long use case. And that's what I think is really cool about the technology. So obviously recycling is 
going to be become more of a thing. You're starting to see it already take off in China uh, because they have a larger lithium ion uh, manufacturing capacity. And it's also just EVs are more common there. Mm-hmm. But uh, domestically, these batteries are being used in everything from uh, old Porsches. They're putting electric motors in, which I even think is a little sacrilegious, uh, yeah. but they're very fun to drive. And then to boats, to even people using them in uh, battery backup systems for their houses. Yeah, second life. So I, yeah, and, I, and so I, I completely agree with like the 100,000 mile thing that pulls, that, that's probably pretty accurate. Uh, I just think the big thing to realize is that's just the first it's kind of a form of reincarnation that you just don't see with combustion engines that we're seeing with lithium ion technologies uh, where these batteries are being put in either other cars to everything to Bitcoin mining machines. The, the lithium ion cells themselves have a strong secondary market before they're ever even being considered to be recycled. Yeah. To really extend getting that, um, getting the most use out of them for a production and kind of uh, pollution standpoint. And you touched on too, and even if you, uh, so, so hopefully Karen are making sustainable, sustainable decisions, but even if you don't let your vehicles are a ton of fun to drive and <laughs> whether, totally. whether the, so I get to play around in the Taycan a bit, which is, incredible. Oh, nice. um, but, but yeah. even, even a base model three is, is fun uh, off the line. So cool. Um, so like, like I said, one, and, and once again, I, I, I love, uh, the combustion engine. I mean, I, I do think the future probably will be your daily drivers and EV and then, if you want to have an old Porsche or Mustang or something, that's what you kind of take on the weekends or on a fun day, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, I really appreciate all of this, uh, the, the grid focus discussion. Like I said, I learned, learned a ton and I've, I've enjoyed talking about it. I want to just wrap up with a few, um, like, like a tip typically call rapid fire questions. So more sure. about you, less about, uh, work, work you're doing. So the first one is a, uh, favorite book or books of yours. So is there anything that you've read that has had a, uh, significant impact on you you know there's there are so i do most of the books i read are actually nonfiction. as far as fiction books i don't know why but i always really enjoyed the tom clancy like jack ryan series when i was growing up kind of uh middle school high school years which is such a weird thing for being a middle school or high schooler reading these uh spy thrillers i don't know it it just seemed really uh out of place for some of my age but then as far as nonfiction, uh I, I really always enjoyed uh, a lot of startup books. So Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Uh, and then also Guy Kawasaki. I mean, he's done a bunch of them now. <laughs> but the original one I read of his was The Art of the Start. And it just kind of looking at that framework of applying startup mentality um, to everything, whether it's to a business or to a nonprofit or to other ways in your life to make yourself more productive. Cool. How about what would you say is uh, a personal strength of yours? So something that you, um, whether it's personality or, or a learning skill or something that you do well that uh, you're able to apply to, to make an impact? Yeah, I think one of the things I've always been told that I'm, actually there's two things, but one of the things I've always been told I'm really good at is um, networking and then also really explaining. And I think this kind of comes from having more of a science and kind of like yourself, an engineering background uh, of explaining really, and you do this really well, as well, but explaining really, um, which can be kind of hard to understand topics and then kind of breaking them down in easier to understand ways and kind of sharing that interest and getting people excited about it. So that's why I really enjoyed about starting my podcast during the lockdown. It was just kind of a fun way to leverage my network uh, and then hopefully get other people excited about technologies I'm excited about and trying to explain them in very approachable ways without being too um, high level or condescending. 
yeah yeah like that maybe that's a good place to to wrap up but yeah like uh I've shared before, I really enjoyed the principle or the, the idea from, from Cal Newport um, about career capital. So, um, you know, developing skills and doing things that then you can apply later on into your, in your career. And it, it seems like this was a, uh, for you, if you're, if you're reflecting, yeah, you have, you have a nice network, you know, you know, people in the industry and you do a nice job of, of speaking in layman terms about these complex topics. And it seems like a, a perfect application. Um, so, so yeah, grid connections, right. The, the podcast, um, I assume you can find it everywhere. Yeah, it, it's Apple, Spotify, even YouTube. Um, our website is just gridconnections.fm or grid-connections.com. Someone already had gridconnections.com clearly. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, any podcast site, you can search it or just go to YouTube Grid Connections and uh, you can find out more about our interviews. And I just want to say it's been a pleasure speaking on here and talking with you about a lot of these topics. Uh, I think clearly we both enjoy yeah, yeah, for sure. So if you're listening, looking for something else to listen to in, in this space, yeah, check it out. Um, Chase, anyway, uh, I'll link to your LinkedIn page and stuff anywhere else where you'd want to send people. I, I think that's probably the best places. I'm. Uh, we also have uh, grid connections on Twitter, yeah. uh, which is a great place. If there's anyone you want to suggest, we try and interview or have on a panel in the future as well. Perfect. Well, Chase, thanks for the time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. This has been great. Looking forward to talking with you and others soon. The Future Mobility Podcast is brought to you by FEV. For more than 40 years, FEV has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry. With a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design, development, integration, and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies, FEV is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions. I'm your host, Brandon Bartnick. If you want to learn more or get in contact to share feedback or questions, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.